0: Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we hear from two diabetes patients who recently received pancreas transplants.
1: You wake up after a good night's sleep, and your body feels the same throughout the day. You're stable. You don't have the up and downs in your body. You don't have the tired feeling, and then all of a sudden you feel better when your sugar's at a normal level.
0: Plus, we'll get the causes and effects of mild cognitive impairment.
2: They're not yet so significantly ill from a cognitive problem that we would consider that they have uh, dementia.
0: And we talk about the potential threat of the Zika virus.
3: It's been reported for other viruses, classically like rubella uh, can give you microcephaly, but hasn't been reported with these family of viruses. And so this makes it another unique feature of Zika virus.
0: We'll get our checkup from the neck up and we'll hear a piece from our healing muse, all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, what exactly do we mean by mild cognitive impairment in the elderly? Plus, we talk about the potential threat of the Zika virus. But first, Two pancreas transplant patients who hope to leave their diabetes behind. Brittle diabetes mellitus, or labile diabetes, is a term used to describe a type of type 1 diabetes, which is characterized by ups and downs of blood sugar levels, which are quite difficult to control with standard medical diabetic protocols. A pancreas transplant can offer a powerful treatment option for these patients. And here with more on all of this are two patients who have recently undergone just such a transplant. With me today are Patrick Nolan and Harry Tynan, both transplant patients. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. We're very, very interested in hearing from both of you.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: So let me start with you, um, Patrick. You were diagnosed with type one diabetes as a child. Tell us about that. When did it happen for you? Uh,
4: May fifth, nineteen seventy five, day before my eleventh birthday.
0: And At, had you had signs? What 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 led you to you know worry well, about I, diabetes? I,
4: I was wetting wetting the bed, losing weight, always felt feeling ill. Uh, my folks thought maybe I had a bladder infection. Uh, on May fifth, I was taken to the doctors and. That's when we found out.
0: Yeah. So that was quite a long time ago. It was. Some 40 years ago. 41
4: yeah. years ago this past May. Right.
0: And how about you, Harry? I was what diagnosed was your story? at the uh, age of 12. Uh,
1: so symptoms, similar. Similar. Um, symptoms were brought on, noticed uh, common symptoms. Uh, I have two other brothers who were diagnosed before me, so my parents knew the symptoms already, what to, what we were looking for. And uh, symptoms appeared, and we took her from there with the doctors, and
0: so age twelve. Yes. So very similar. And and you so you have a strong family history of yeah, diabetes with two brothers. And Patrick, you as well have a family. I do as well. History. I have a first
4: cousin and an and a niece. Between the three of us, almost a hundred years of diabetes in our family.
0: Now, I mentioned in the beginning of this that this type of diabetes that you have, it's type one, obviously, ch- juvenile diabetes, Correct. but also that it has a certain characteristic of what we call lability, meaning it's harder to control. Tell us about that. What type of medications or treatment options did you undertake as a child and into your, into your adult life?
4: Well, I mean, for myself, for over five decades, I've been on every insulin that ever rolled out. I came out when there was only two types, so I've gone through all the regimens of the insulins, um, syringes, insulin pumps. I was on chew and the insulin needles, or in- needle pens.
0: And with all of those things, was it difficult to control your, your levels? Pretty much. So you really did have somewhat of a resistance.
4: Resistance towards it.
0: Right. And how about you, Harry?
4: I started
1: immediately on insulin injections with, through a needle, and... Uh, through the years at first it was uh, hard to control very up and down in my early years i went through a period of stability and then in my 20s i was definitely all over the place for quite some time Ch- changed different insulins through the next decade and uh you know it stabilized more in my 30s until I started running into the problems with the kidney and everything else. Yes,
0: yeah, so let's get to that. Both of you have had to have a kidney transplant secondary to Correct. this difficult diabetes, right? Cuz the yes. diabetes eventually can ruin a kidney or it, your it, kidney function.
4: Well, I've had just about all the side effects from high blood pressure, cholesterol to my kidney shutting down in 11. At
0: I'm sorry, at 11? No, no. In, in 2011.
4: Oh, and in 2011. When my kidneys finally yes, shut down. Yes,
0: and then you had to have a kidney transplant. Then
4: I had a kidney transplant.
0: Yeah, so that was successful, I understand. How about you? You had a kidney I had transplant I well, transplant Harry?
1: in November of 2013. I received it from my father.
0: Wow. And you did well with that. did
1: really well with that.
0: Right. But the point here is that your, your diabetes was so difficult to control and was doing damage to your body that your kidneys basically suffered as yes, a result. that's correct. Yeah. And following that, I mean, how did it affect, let me start with you, Patrick. How did it affect your life? I mean, how restrictive, tell us what life was like. Well, I mean,
4: I I guess restrictive is all what you consider it. Other than having to watch your diet, it really wasn't all that restrictive. Or at least I didn't think it was, because it was something I lived almost five decades with so i just adapted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you adapt and you yeah. move on yeah
0: yeah so but in your case harry you said in, in your 30s you started to see that it was getting more difficult to control yeah it's time went on definitely and why was that do you think
1: uh part of that was probably me just trying to i, I you know i dealt with it for so long i felt you know i probably cut some corners at yeah, times that's that's the and one you thing You start getting away with it you think you can do what you want and then compensate with some insulin yeah you know do that you think your readings
4: are good? That that's the one thing, big thing with type one diabetes. It's we all hit an age or a period there okay. we're going, we're invincible, we're gonna do what we want. The
1: medication will make up want. for it. Yeah.
4: It's not hurting me inside.
1: Oh, that's yeah.
0: very interesting. Very interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with two pancreatic transplant patients, Patrick Nolan and Harry Tynan. and we're talking about pancreas transplants as a treatment for diabetes. So, basically, you were you were um, after the kidney transplants. How were you doing? I mean, in terms of your health.
1: I, how about you, Harry? Overall, I was doing very well. It was a change, you know. I was dialysis previously for only 10 months I was pretty lucky before I received my transplant and so that was a complete change the dialysis took a lot out of you and I noticed a complete 180 after a while after the recovery process in
0: terms of how you felt
1: Uh, in terms of how I felt overall you still had the up and downs the way you felt in your body from the you know the diabetes but the overall overall
4: health has started to improve
0: and how about you how was your your kidney transplant did you what was your state of health after that
4: it was fantastic. I mean, for me, I think the only time I really felt punk is if I put too much fluid on. Because I've always stayed relatively active. And the more active I stayed, the better I felt.
0: So, I guess, so, so the
4: dialysis didn't really drain me.
0: When you were on dialysis? When I was but how on about, dialysis. how about after the transplant, the kidney transplant? I felt the same.
4: I mean, I felt better. People said I looked better.
0: So in I mean, general
4: I, I didn't think I looked bad, but huh.
0: So in general, it sounds to me like you both were able to live fairly active lives, am I correct with that? Yeah, for but, the most part. I'd say. Yeah. pretty much. But you did have to constantly be doing what? Checking You were your-
4: you were being di- you were spending 12 hours a week on your back on your sitting down doing nothing.
0: Oh, like, you mean during, during dialysis. dialysis. But yeah. in terms of checking you know, your lifestyle in general, you were always aware of what you could eat or trying to be aware of well, what try you're, to be you could eat. trying. as that's possible, but <laughs> yeah. you, you,
1: that's when you start to cut corners and try to get away with it.
0: Right. So basically, what made you consider this treatment option? You, Patrick, first. Well,
4: when I, when I first went on the transplant list for my kidney, um, I was told outright that the I was a candidate for dual transplant, but not here at Upstate. I would have to go to Straw Memorial in Rochester. Unfortunately, I was put on hold for a little bit for my kidney transplant. Then when Dr. Grusner came on, he reactivated me. He said, we will get you both. And within six months of each other, I did receive both a kidney and a pancreas.
0: So basically, this is a new procedure that's not new. It's not a new procedure, but it's new to the Upstate Medical University. And you were Basically, the first person since 2005 who received a pancreas here at Upstate. That's my understanding, yes. Yes. And so the pancreas was from a a deceased donor.
4: Deceased donor from Tennessee.
0: Okay. And basically, you had a certain time pressure to have this done, though, right? It's
4: my understanding it's a 12-hour window. In terms of the... As far as what the Upstate staff wants.
0: Well in terms of the pancreas surviving surviving being yeah. being functional correct and able to be transplanted into a living yeah, into person. a living recipient. Right, right. And how about what was your story? How did you find out about this? Because it's my understanding that you each had your procedure within days of one another and you represent the two first people in our current situation. How yeah. did you how did you find out about it?
1: Pancreatic transplant was first mentioned to me when I had my kidney transplant. And obviously, they told me the program wasn't available here at Upstate at the time. And uh, as the years passed, these last couple of years, and it was brought up to me that the program was started, there was never a decision to be made. It was just when can I get it done?
0: And so, what was what were you told in terms of the diabetes and, and the pancreas transplant? I mean, what what were your hopes and expectations first, you Patrick, going into the surgery?
4: What my my expectations and hope were be able to no longer take injections to relive relive again
0: basically to be cured basically
4: from the age of 1 day 11 I don't remember so this is literally all something I'm reliving my youth again
0: because this your life was as a diabetic and that sounds like that's pretty true for you as yeah, well probably. Harry and now it's almost like a new chapter is that what i'm pretty hearing
4: pretty much yeah i definitely say that
0: yeah so what does it feel like, Patrick?
4: I just wake up in the morning. We, I, You probably have to check your sugar twice. Twice a day right yeah, now. Yeah, twice a day. I look at the numbers and go, wow. Mm-hmm. This wh- is Wow wh- what?
0: What? Well, what do you find? I've
4: never seen them that low.
0: So, so it looks you know, normal? Constantly,
1: they're normal. Yeah, they're on a constant, at a constant normal. At the a way constant, normal. I feel every day now to wake up when you're not tired and you wake up after a good night's sleep and your body feels the same throughout the day. You're stable. You don't have the up and downs in your body. You don't have the tired feeling, and then all of a sudden you feel better when your sugar's at a normal level. It's a, it's a different feeling within in, within myself now.
4: Yeah.
0: So what is it? But how does it feel psychologically then? I mean, what is it? How has it affected you? I know it's a short time. I know it's very recent that this has all. I'm, taken I'm place. still
4: in awe. You know, Say it's more almost, about that. It's almost as as I said. I've been this way for so long. It's like learning how to ride a bike all over again. It's learning how to live all over again. I just wake up
0: and go, wow. And you look ahead to a very positive future. Yes. Yeah. And how about you, Harry? What does it feel like? I mean, I know you're saying feel in terms of you feel normal or you feel your body is stable. But psychologically, how does that feel for you? Because you're still quite young. How old are you? I'm 39. Yeah. You're still quite young. So... Is this how does this feel for you?
1: It's it's a complete change. Just to look forward, not to have to the the regimen every day of the checking of the insulin injections, and just to move forward. And you know, I can when I wake up and go throughout the day. You, it's still going to be the adjustment. Just just return home two days ago, sure. and just to be able to know what I can eat, and just to think about it. Even when you sit down to eat, you know, you think you're supposed to be counting carbs already, and I'm ready to pick up the insulin pen, yeah. and
4: I don't have to. You don't have to,
1: it's, it's a lot of
0: adjustment, but in a positive direction, and it sounds to me like maybe different plans, different uh, hopes and dreams can now be fulfilled.
4: Well, I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've always traveled, so it was a matter of just fitting, testing and taking insulin in between traveling. So you haven't
0: let it stop you to no. till this point. No, right? you can't. No, but you it can't. sounds no, like definitely. no, you can't. But it sounds like it's going to open up a lot new a lot of new doors for both of you. Definitely, yeah. Very exciting. I appreciate your coming in and sharing all this with us. I wish you all the best. It's very, very hopeful and exciting news. My guests have been um, Harry Tynan and Patrick Nolan. They're both pancreas transplant patients, and we've been talking about um, pancreas transplants as treatments for diabetes. Coming up next, what exactly do we mean by mild cognitive impairment in the elderly? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. As the baby boomers age and people are living longer, the numbers of people over age 65 is growing. And long term studies suggest that 10 to 20 percent of those aged 65 and older may have mild cognitive impairment. But what are the ramifications of this problem and what can be done to treat it? Here with some answers is Dr. Amy Sanders. She's Assistant Professor of Neurology specializing in Cognitive Neurology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Sanders. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, what is mild
2: cognitive impairment? Well, we can think of it in two ways. One is just as a simple descriptive term, not necessarily as a uh, specific disorder. But when we describe somebody who has mild cognitive impairment, what we're really saying is they're no longer normal cognitively for their age, whatever that age may be, but they're not yet so significantly ill from a cognitive problem that we would consider that they have uh, dementia.
0: So is it a matter of degree then? If you think of a continuum, would you say it's, it's a matter
2: of a degree, some malfunction, some limitation. Definitely. The, the idea of a continuum is a very good one because if you imagine being uh, people who are normal for cognitive age on the left side of the continuum and all the way over on the right are people who have some sort of dementia. In between, there's a big empty space. And in fact, uh, about 25 years ago, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic by the name of Ron Peterson recognized that there was this empty space. And actually kind of invented this diagnosis as a way to fill that empty space, because he recognized that people don't go to bed out of a Monday night over on the left side of the diagram with normal cognition for age, but wake up Tuesday morning on the right hand side of the diagram with dementia but- there's something that there's a, a an intermediate stage through which people proceed. Going so, from cog- being cognitively normal to dementia. So that's and nowadays su- we call that intermediate stage mild cognitive impairment.
0: But that suggests that this is a process and that in some way you're in, as you said, an intermediate stage. Does that mean that everyone who is termed mild, mildly cognitive, imp- with mild cognitive impairment, does that mean they go on to necessarily have this more advanced form of dementia? Or do some of these people, does it go
2: away? So it's a it's a curious state. Uh, after we've made the diagnosis, and there are specific ways that we go about doing that, but after the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment has been made, um, one of the things that we determine is whether or not memory is involved. Is memory part of the mild cognitive impairment, or is memory not part of the mild cognitive impairment? If memory is involved, on average, we say that people have roughly an annual risk of progression from mild cognitive impairment to dementia, in this case usually Alzheimer's disease, of about 12 to 15% per year. If memory is not involved, all bets are off.
0: So let's talk about that. So what does it look like? in when you're in that middle zone so to speak what are the symptoms what are the kinds of attributes
2: or or problems that people face so the kinds of things that a doctor might hear from their patients would be things like i can't concentrate anymore i'm forgetful i it takes me a long time to learn things now uh i keep losing my keys i can't come up with the word that i want when i want it uh and then it's incumbent upon the doctor to determine, are the complaints really those that are associated with normal cognitive aging? And we certainly know that as people get older, it takes longer to learn new things. Uh, it takes longer to remember things we've learned in the past. We don't process information as quickly as once we did. Uh, it takes us longer to get a, the word that we want. Word
0: finding is usually
2: impaired. Well, or it starts to change. It's not impaired, change. but what, when people have- Delayed a tip of the tongue phenomenon and they can't quite come up with the word that they want, but 15 minutes or 15 seconds later, it pops into their head. We call that blocking or tip of the tongue kind of phenomena. And those are perfectly normal for cognitive aging, Frank memory impairment. So it's not that you put the keys on the coffee table instead of the table by the door, but somehow they wound up in the ice cream container in the freezer. That's not normal. And that's a signal that there's something very, very wrong. Somebody with mild cognitive impairment is probably going to have more the keys are on the coffee table instead of the the place where you usually put them, but they're not in the freezer. So it may for some people it is an intermediate stage between normal cognitive aging and a later dementia, and for others it isn't. And we, as I said before, we we make um, the diagnosis. And specify whether or not memory is involved, and if memory is not involved, then it's much less likely that people will progress, and it is much harder. It's much harder to predict with any kind of um, reasonable precision or accuracy. So
0: I saw some terms amnes- amnestic... Mild cognitive impairment and non amnestic, and that has to do with with memory? Right. So, somebody who
2: has amnestic mild cognitive impairment, there we're saying memory is involved. Non amnestic mild cognitive impairment, memory is not involved. So, if memory is not involved, the
0: kinds of thinking skills that might be affected have to do with decision making, perhaps, or
2: remembering sequences of events or a complex
0: task. That could could
2: be anything. We divide thinking into five main and admittedly overlapping. Groups, but there's attention, memory, language use, what we call executive function, which are things like executive, re- uh, uh, sorry, um, abstract reasoning and problem solving, multitasking, the bane of everyone's existence these <laughs> days. Uh, So executive function and also visual spatial abilities and for somebody to meet criteria for mild cognitive impairment in general they need to have at least one of those five areas of cognition in which they have a documented quantitative impairment that sort of presupposes that they've had cognitive testing that has specifically looked at each of those five domains so you Physicians should not be diagnosing mild cognitive impairment just on the basis of a single screening cognitive test given in the primary care doctor's office. But when there's more specific testing, we need to have an impairment in at least one type of thinking. And in non-amnestic mild cognitive impairment, that presupposes that there would be an impairment in attention, language, executive function, or visual spatial ability. Sometimes more than one.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neurologist Dr. Amy Sanders. We're talking about mild cognitive impairment. So let's get back to executive functioning. You're saying in the non-amnestic type, that can be impaired. So things like decision making, problem solving, that kind of thing yes. will be mm-hmm. will be impaired. So you were alluding to the diagnosis. How how best is this diagnosed? If the question comes up, if you're in your primary care doctor's office and you're complaining or your spouse or someone that you know very well you're with is complaining about this problem, you're saying it's not sufficient to do a quick screening and make the diagnosis. You really need to have some more
2: Correct. There are actually, testing. actually There are published diagnostic criteria. And in fact, that Sense of of a complaint. Doc, there's something wrong with me, whether it's that I can't remember where I put my keys or I can't decide what to have for dinner tomorrow night. Something feels not right to me. That complaint is a key component of the diagnostic criteria. There must be a so called subjective complaint. Doc, there's a problem. There also has to be objective evidence of an impairment in at least one type of thinking. And that goes back to what we were discussing a few moments ago about there should be some sort of area-specific cognitive evaluation. And that usually means that uh, somebody gets referred to see um, a physician like myself, or uh, they get referred to a special kind of psychologist called a neuropsychologist for an in-depth cognitive evaluation. So subjective complaint, objective evidence of a problem, but you need to have normal general cognition. So that screening test that the primary care doctor may give in his or her office, the results on that should be normal. In order to make the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, often what happens in clinical practice is that somebody has a screening test and they score below the normal range and get labeled as mild cognitive impairment. But that actually violates the, the uh, definition. published definition of the disease.
0: So, but the point is, if you pass the exam, isn't it quite often that the primary care physician
2: will say, Oh, you're not having any problems? I mean, they, they it's may almost, well, right. So, it's almost if like they're. A false- A false sense of security. And if the primary care physician doesn't understand what mild cognitive impairment is, and a lot of people have a very sort of vague and ill-defined kind of general descriptive understanding of what mild cognitive impairment is. But in fact, there are specific criteria that we want people to meet.
0: Do you ever do things like, you know, brain scans, MRIs of the brain? I mean, do you ever do a cerebrospinal fluid tests, biomarkers? Is there any other thing to be done?
2: That sort of depends on where one is practicing and uh, what, uh, what the real diagnostic questions are. When somebody comes to see me with a complaint about their, their memory, I can't tell just by looking at them whether they have mild cognitive impairment, they're normal, or maybe they're in the early stages of something like Alzheimer's disease. So my basic workup, always consists of some simple blood tests screening blood tests usually for the levels of vitamin b12 in the bloodstream and i also check how well the thyroid gland is functioning deficiencies in either of those areas can actually cause cognitive problems that are very easily treated i always want some sort of brain pictures a cat scan i'll live with it if i have to but i really prefer that people have an mri magnetic resonance imaging The MRI diagnoses absolutely nothing, but it gives me a sense of how healthy the brain looks. Is it, does it look like there's a lot of atherosclerotic trouble in the brain? Is it shrinking? Is it shrinking in a focal way, one area more than the other? That's the kind of thing that I look for on the MRI. So it gives me helpful additional information but doesn't diagnose anything. Cerebrospinal fluid is often used in research protocols, and there are biomarkers that are sort of monitored over time and that will change as people go from being normal through the mild cognitive impairment stage and then may progress to uh, something like an Alzheimer's dementia. They're not usually used clinically. They're pretty expensive.
0: So you you run a clinic that does basically attempt to make these diagnoses right Right.
2: i have a what i call a neurocognitive clinic within the neurology department at upstate and primarily what i do is diagnose people's cognitive problems so sometimes i diagnose people as being as having normal cognition or normal cognition for an older adult Numerous times I've diagnosed mild cognitive impairment of both the amnestic and non-amnestic variety, and then I also, if if people meet criteria, will make a diagnosis of of dementia. Some of the patients who come to me for the diagnostic evaluation stay in the clinic to get their care, and others go back to their primary care doctors. I don't want
0: to run out of time, but people can reach, I guess, that clinic at 464-4243. That's an upstate clinic, but we'll have a link on our website as well. Very briefly, in the little bit of time we have left, What kind of treatment and prognosis
2: is there for this issue? If one reads the published research, it shows that there's no change in long-term outcomes if we start treatment with, say, an Alzheimer's medication at the mild cognitive impairment stage. So it doesn't really help. I don't usually give people prescriptions for medications, but there are lifestyle things that people can do that may help uh, in the short run and also in the long run. So cognitively stimulating activities, something like doing the Daily New York Times crossword puzzle. Doesn't matter what you do, as long as it engages your brain and you do it on a regular basis. So it's brain exercise. Brain brain activity. Yes, Uh, I don't recommend those sort of computerized training programs. The evidence base there is not very very strong. But something that engages your brain. How about uh, social activity? Does that social activity is fantastic. There's actually evidence that shows that it helps. It is that it's cognitively protective, probably by helping people avoid getting depressed but we don't know that for sure. But social activity, we know. A strong social network is protective. How about general
0: exercise in general? Also
2: very good. The brain loves to have good brain flow. Avoiding multitasking, getting good rest, uh, eating the so-called Mediterranean diet. Uh, Olive oil, not Crisco. Fish, (laughs) not beef.
0: Those are good points, good tips. Prognosis in the little bit of time we have left?
2: So people who have mild cognitive impairment that involves their memory have, on average, a 12 to 15% risk of uh, transitioning to Alzheimer's disease each year. And for people with non-amnestic mild cognitive impairment, it's very hard to make uh, prognostic statements. Some stay in that stage, some revert back to normal, and some do progress, usually to other types, non-Alzheimer's types of dementia.
0: Well, this is a lot to take in, but very—it's hopeful information at the same time. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. My guest has been Dr. Amy Sanders, assistant professor of neurology specializing in cognitive neurology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
5: Hi. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Where'd she go? Or why friends and family are important, just in case. Well, dear listeners, here's what happened. She disappeared. An older client of mine, coming in weekly for some time, a bit forgetful but doing relatively well on her own, said she was having surgery. Nothing serious. And then disappeared. Disappeared. My calls home kept getting, the mailbox is full. Calls to the hospital, nobody here with that name. She was cut off from family for years and no other numbers in her chart, so a real, sad, what-to-do-now mystery. Then her voice on my answering machine, Dr. O'Neill, call me, I'm terrified they're trying to kill me, but left no phone number. And still, the mailbox is full. Then another voice on my machine from a nursing home and rehab center. Do I know her? Yes. Can I talk to her? Yes. And she is not herself. Didn't know where she was or why. Terrified someone was trying to hurt her. The nursing home staff didn't know she'd never been like this and that something was terribly wrong, either a missed medical issue or a medication problem. But trying to convince the overworked staff who barely knew her of that was, well, I don't see you on her chart, Dr. O'Neill, as someone we're authorized to speak to, and her doctor is in a meeting now, and can he get back to you? Et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, two painful weeks and many, 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 many phone calls later, we got her back in the hospital where people know her history directly from me and the electronic medical records. And she knows me now and is no longer delusional or delirious and we've reached her family who are back in touch. How to keep this from happening to you? Do a fire drill, medical emergency style, like making believe you've had a stroke or were suddenly delirious. Do you have friends and family, one or more of whom are your healthcare proxies and can make medical decisions for you when you can't? Have you told them what you want done medically? Do you stay in touch with them so they know something was wrong if you didn't talk to them? Do you know what hospital you want to use? Do you have a primary care physician familiar with your medical history so hospital and nursing home docs can get that info if you can't provide it? Do you have friends and family who know your primary care physician? Do you and they have a list of your medications? Perhaps both are on a card in your wallet, hint hint. <laughs> Does somebody have your power of attorney and know where your checkbook is to pay your rent so you don't get booted out if you're you're gone unexpectedly for a long stretch? Does your primary care doc know who your health care proxies are and how to reach them? Did you put a copy of your health care proxy and power of attorney in your medical record for easy access? And finally, does somebody have a list of your usernames and passwords? And or know if you have a safety deposit box and where it and the key are? I'm Dr. Rich. Be prepared. O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Next up, with the Olympics on the horizon, what you need to know about the Zika virus. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen, along with you. The World Health Organization recently declared the Zika virus and its suspected link to birth defects an international public health emergency, a move that signals the seriousness of the outbreak and gives countries new tools to fight it. Here with more on all of this and the risk it poses to the U.S. is Dr. Timothy Endy, Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, and Immunology, and the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Andy. Thanks for coming in.
3: Good morning. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Let's first begin by explaining what is the Zika virus.
3: Well, Zika virus, um, uh, as it states, is a virus. Um, So it's a very small, replicating virus. um, piece of material that is, uh, can be spread in a variety of ways but Zika virus in particular was um, our first isolated in 1947 and was isolated uh, in Uganda uh, outside of Entebbe in the Zika forest and that's how it's got its name Zika virus and it was done um, uh, through the Rockefeller Institute's um, surveillance program for yellow fever and they isolated uh, the virus from a febrile monkey Uh, that was part of that surveillance program. And they did some characterization. They realized that the virus was very different from yellow fever, uh, different from dengue viruses, which were endemic there, and so it it earned its own name. So Zika virus is a RNA virus, so it uses uh, uh, RNA as a genetic code, and it's very similar.
0: That's genetic material RNA. Exactly.
3: Very similar to dengue virus, West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis virus, Um, So it's in this whole family of what they call the flaviviruses.
0: So was there a concern back in '47 if it were found in a monkey, was there a concern that it would affect humans back then?
3: Well, the history is, is, to me is fascinating, and you have to go back to the the original publications. But like any new virus, I'm sure the investigators and Dr. Dick at that time isolated the virus, was very excited to discover a brand-new virus. But the next question is, you know, what does it mean? There's a lot of viruses out there that don't affect humans. So the first thing that he did was he developed some diagnostic tests, and he looked around the populations Says, well. Do people have antibody to this virus? Is there evidence for Infection. infection? And he did. He found that there was what we call a seroprevalence. The percentage of people who have antibody to it was about 20%.
0: So that people had experienced this disease, whether or not they were even aware of it.
3: Exactly. But they really didn't find a clinical illness. So the next question was, well, are they actually developing some symptoms? And he found patients who had fever, muscle aches, um, they were not dengue or yellow fever, and he found that it was from Zika virus. Probably the most interesting study, though, was done in the 1950s. And an investigator uh, in the the tradition of really good medicine Injected himself with the Zika virus.
0: <laughs> we hear about that all through history yeah, of medicine. Yeah,
3: exactly. Just you know, it's uh, you know it's quite amazing that they can do that. But uh, he injected himself, and he developed fever, a headache, uh, pain behind the eye, muscle aches. He was able to isolate the virus from his blood. He broke out into a rash, and then he got better. And that was the first clinical description of acute Zika infection.
0: So exactly. <clears throat> well, first let's get to how it's transmitted because mm-hmm. I think that's a, a great concern to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been talks about, I mean, obviously it's mosquito born largely. Correct. So explain how that works. So if it's in a monkey population, let's say it's, is it that the mosquito bites the monkey and then he get, the mosquito gets the virus and then the mosquito goes on and bites the human? Is that how it works?
3: Well, that's how it works for Zika virus and dengue virus. Um, so there is a, um, monkey, mosquito, back to monkey. So if we pretend we're looking out through the eyes of a female mosquito, which is the one that takes blood meals that's needed for the protein to to develop eggs and such, Uh, the female mosquito sees a monkey in a tree and goes and feeds it, takes a blood meal. If that monkey happened to have virus in his blood from Zika, then the mosquito will take that in and the virus starts replicating the mosquito and concentrates in the salivary glands. Then usually after 10 to 14 days, the mosquito is infected will then go on, take another blood meal from a non-infected monkey, and then transmit the virus to that. So that's actually called what we call a sylvatic cycle, monkey-mosquito-monkey. Now, if man is there and he's chopping down a tree or he's collecting bananas, the mosquito is not not very um, picky about the blood meals that it takes. So it sees a human there, takes a blood meal, and it's infected, and it will then transmit it to a human. The human goes home and then it starts to cycle from mosquitoes to human back to mosquitoes.
0: But there also have been talks, I mean, there's been talk recently that this also can be transmitted human to human without the mosquito vector through sexual contact. Is there enough data to support this at this point?
3: That's, so that's one of the very unique features of this Zika virus. So it's unlike its other cousins in the flavivirus family um, and having this ability to, um, to spread sexually. There is a distant constant, and that's hepatitis C, which is in the flavivirus, that can be sexually transmitted. So that there seems to be some inherent characteristics about that. So Zika virus um, has been now established, I think, in about five cases where there's been documented um, male-to-female partner sexual transmission. And they've also discovered that the virus concentrates in the male semen so that it uh, allows uh, transmission during sexual intercourse is, is the current theory.
0: Do they have any idea though, I mean, let's get to what the disease itself, for the most part, doesn't pose a major threat to life. Is that correct?
3: That's entirely correct. So there have been historically at least three huge outbreaks before this current you know, outbreak in Brazil and, and South America. And uh, there have been no deaths you know, reported for Zika. Um, the majority of infections, almost 50% or more, are subclinical, meaning they, people never really know that they're infected or get sick or have a fever. Um, very few, just a handful, were in the hospital with severe symptoms.
0: But the major concern really has been this issue of microcephaly or basically a, um, a reduction in the size of the skull or the head of, of developing fetus. Correct. And then brain, all kinds of developmental problems and neurological problems following that.
3: Correct. So children who are, are born with severely um, diminished size of their head, microcephaly, uh, does occur in the United States. It occurs through the world, but it's a very rare occurrence. And um, it's, it's been reported for other viruses, classically like rubella uh, virus, uh, can give you microcephaly uh, cytomegalovirus, but hasn't been reported with these family of viruses. And so this makes it another unique feature of Zika virus, these reported increase, dramatic increase, a hundred fold increase of microcephaly uh, reported in Brazil.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with infectious disease specialist Dr. Timothy Endy, and we're talking about Zika virus. So that is the major concern, I guess, or the thing that's making people frightened. Mm -hmm. And clearly, this whole idea of sexual transmission plays another, puts another level of concern into it. Because some, I mean, obviously, it's hard to protect yourself against mosquitoes. But that is still more, you know, you you still have some methodology there. But this idea of how long the virus lasts in the blood, do we know that? In terms of, if someone were to be infected, let's say a male partner Mm -hmm. infected, goes through the disease process, and then later on has a sexual contact with a female partner, is it likely that that female partner could then receive the disease and harbor it, perhaps in a dormant fa- stage until such time as she became pregnant?
3: Well, that's a very good question, and we don't know the exact answer. But we can speculate that this is a virus that's an acute infection, which means that there is a limit to the amount of reproduction. So it's unlike HIV, which is a chronic infection. Uh, So there is a limit. So we know that people who are acutely infected with uh, Zika virus, that the levels of virus in their blood usually last between seven to 10 days, and then disappears once the body kicks it out of the system. And then they've been able to document uh, Zika virus in urine and semen for about a month. Um, So it does resolve over time, so it doesn't represent a chronic risk. Uh, it represents a risk during the acute period of infection.
0: So there is a time limit to it. So what is the CDC recommending these days? I mean, what are you telling your patients, and what's the overall kind of, you know, the the current wisdom?
3: Well, first is education. So that the current outbreak, which was explosive in Brazil, is now affecting 10, 12 countries in South America. It has spread into the Caribbean. There are now, I guess, 100 and some odd cases in Puerto Rico. Uh, there's been a, a woman reported with microcephaly in Hawaii that had visited um, Brazil during the first trimester. There have been reported cases in travelers returning back to the United States, but no documented transmission with the United States. So the recommendations are for travelers uh, going to these um, heavy transmission areas to be careful, um, to protect themselves by wearing um, insect repellents, which usually contain, you know, DEET containing. Uh, compounds that you can spray or, or rub on.
0: And these mosquitoes, I'm sorry to interrupt you, mm-hmm. are active during the day as well as night, am I correct?
3: Well, daytime mosquitoes. So the mosquito is an Aedes aegypti, mm-hmm. which are tropical, subtropical mosquito that, was, that also spreads chikungunya, also spreads uh, dengue, um, and they are daytime feeders. So they like to, to live in the day and feed during the day, but they also like to shade. So you're at the beach, you're under an umbrella or a tree stand, you know, away from the sun, and that's where the mosquitoes like to feed on you. And that's really a good time to wear the uh, repellent or to cover yourself with some loose clothing to protect yourself from the bite of mosquito. So the recommendations are to protect yourself if you're traveling those areas. And there are special high-risk populations. So the CDC and the WHO are currently recommending if you're planning to become pregnant or are pregnant, Um, especially the high risk during your first trimester, is to avoid traveling to those areas that are uh, currently reporting outbreaks of Zika.
0: And there's a whole listing on the CDC website, I would think, of the countries you want to avoid. How about the the, the Olympics? There's been talk about people, again, Mm -hmm. what's the recommendation there?
3: So the big concern is um, the the Olympics is is a high density. Uh, Certainly Rio and parts of Brazil are highly endemic for Aedes aegypti and the Zika outbreak. And the CDC came out with a recommendation for any women who are planning to become pregnant or are pregnant to avoid traveling to the Olympics.
0: And that's irrespective of if, if you're pregnant, if you're if even if you're at the end of your pregnancy, mm-hmm. theoretically the baby, you know, there's, their um, their development is pretty well set at that point. Correct. But, but they we don't know what the we potential don't know. problems there, are.
3: don't you know, there's a lot of studies going on. Our group is planning to try to uh, do some studies in Ecuador. Um, is trying to answer that question. But if it's like other viruses that produce a birth abnormalities, the first trimester is the highest risk.
0: So basically the bottom line at this point is, well, I know the Aegis Zadipti also exists in Florida that, and, and maybe other places in this country.
3: Louisiana, Texas, Southern California... All have Aedes aegypti. So
0: they could become so-called hot spots. Could theoretically. Be. Absolutely. And is that just a matter of time and a watchful waiting? I mean, is there any methodology that they could be or should be using at this point to decrease that likelihood?
3: I think uh, South Florida, especially Key West and now Fort Lauderdale, um, which has Aedes aegypti, is a good example. A traveler came from the Caribbean with a dengue infection, which is, a, as we stated, a, a cousin of Zika. Um, a mosquito, he went to the Key West, a mosquito uh, fed off of him and then it got into the population of mosquitoes. And so they've had dengue every year now, um, despite very aggressive spraying and um, killing off of um, mosquito eggs and such. So if, if that same patient was a Zika-carrying patient and went to South Florida, you could potentially see the same thing happen.
0: Is there some effort today, and I know you're working on a virus, uh, on a, a vaccine for dengue, mm-hmm. is there some effort today to do some kind of genetic modifications? I know I, I heard something, and, and we're going to run out of time, So, but to actually put mosquitoes out there that will prevent uh, proliferation?
3: Yeah, so I've been a consultant to some groups. Um, one uses um, what's called a Wolbachia infected mosquito, another one is a riddle mosquito, which is um, basically, can't really regenerate, so, it's like there's, a of, yeah. exactly. so uh, there's a lot of sterilize. Exactly, so there's a lot of potential plans out there for that.
0: And you yourself are working on a dengue vaccine. Is that coming along?
3: Well, yeah, we are developing a model to test dengue vaccines, and um, also providing some consultation on a Zika va- vaccine as well.
0: Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming, and you're always a fount of information and wisdom. Thank My guest has been Dr. Timothy Andes, Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, and Immunology, and the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
6: Illness can be a land of opposites, a blessing and a curse. Two of our muse poets have given us a glimpse into illness's softer side. It turns out we can gain much pleasure while we're healing. Skinny Atlas poet Mary Gardner describes a somewhat dreamy time as her medication begins to wear off and she realizes she can focus on something she ordinarily would dismiss. Here is post-surgical mind or absence thereof. The sedative was wearing off. So, too, the bliss of being neither here nor there, a state of mind more than a place, excused from all expected tasks and niceties. In this unburdened, slowly waking state, My eyes, from boredom or fatigue, it isn't clear, soon fell upon a spider, my mind upon its finer points. How much could a spider weigh? If you measure him across his girth or leg to leg, he seems a piece of air. Would a thousand weigh a pound? Does his weight fluctuate? Do spiders care? Do cells slip away, memory as well? Alas, a spider is mostly a nuisance a task for brooms and sprays, Miss Muffet screamed. If not for this delayed recovery, I might have quite ignored a spider's plight, might not have even noticed him. In fact, was he here at all? Oh, the bliss of one more day, being neither here nor there. Poet by night and legal secretary by day, Suzanne Osborne from Queens, Describes a day at home in her wonderful poem called Sick Day. Excused from life, curl up in the big chair with a scratchy throat, a cup of tea, and Mozart low on the radio. Cars swish through the rain, gusts scrabble at the window. Adjust the afghan, turn to the crossword. A siren shrieks in the distance, someone's got real trouble. One across sound from a farm pen, moo or bah, garbage truck growls and whines, covers clatter as the guys fling them in the middle of the sidewalk, bastards, bah, one down has to be brook, the spaniel from down the hall woofs, impatient for the elevator, good thing cats don't have to go out, twelve across, disparage, Light fixtures chime a warning, windows rattle, floor rumbles as opposing trains bring obliterating roar of clashing air and grating steel. When peace returns, Vivaldi has replaced Mozart. Only birdsong I'll hear today. Knock. Hope they're getting along without me. Four across. Author of Orlando. Not too well. Tea's cold. Worth getting up to reheat? Cat on my lap votes no. Eyelids droop, pipes thump and hiss.
0: Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we revisit the e-cigarette debate, plus, how to prevent mother-infant addiction to opioids. I'm Linda Cohen.